Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today our topic is conjuring. My guest is James Tunney, an Irish barrister who has lectured all over the world on international law. He is also something of a mystic and the author of The Mystery of Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, as well as The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. In addition, he's written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September, and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James is based in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a real pleasure once again to be with you. Uh, thank you very much, Jeffrey. Don't let me bang on. St stop me if I, if I talk so much uh, today, and, and you can interrupt me as much as you want. Well, we have a fascinating topic that we're uh, going to explore, the, the whole issue of, of conjuring, which uh, is associated with magical traditions, I mean real magic, but also even stage magic, and uh, has a rather ancient lineage. I just want to emphasize that I approach this from a, a mystical perspective. So I don't claim to be a ceremonial magician. So ceremonial magicians would criticize people like me and say that we are armchair magicians or people looking on from outside who don't understand the discipline. I understand that criticism, but nevertheless, it's, there's an important, uh, there's a need to distinguish between certain areas. So perhaps I could begin by defining what we mean when we're talking about or by the word conjuring. It's important to look, I suppose, at the Latin root of some of the words. And the, the verb uh, to conjure comes from the Latin, or two words, con and jurare. So with, or together, and jurare, which means to swear. So that's a very important, as in the context of to swear an oath, that's a very important root basis of the concept to, to, to launch the discussion. And another uh, ver Latin verb we can think of, um, as we're t in the, our discussion, is vocare, to call, the, the word vocare. So these words have had multiple expressions in the English language. Um, if we think of jurare, we can think of the word jury, and, and it's related to the word for law and rules, so jurist is behind it. And also the word adjure and abjure, which are words which emerge in the context of ceremonial magic. And in the context of the word vocare, to call, we can think of the word invoke and evoke, which are very, very important words. But there are a number of meanings of the word uh, conjure. And so I, perhaps before we get to the ceremonial uh, magic meaning, uh, I'd, I'd emphasize two other possible ways to interpret the word. The first way is the word uh, conjure in the sense of the, the mountebank or the person who's a, a juggler or a magician or an illusionist. And this is a very old meaning in the European sense. So if we look back, we see that as a common theme in painting, in art, to see the conjurer, a picture of a conjurer, for example, Hieronymus Bosch in the 15th century has a, has a notorious, famous picture of the conjurer. So in the picture, we see a conjurer before a table and he's doing a trick and people are fascinated with the uh, with what's going on and the person who is most fascinated is having his pocket picked so this is a warning uh, to people about conjurers that conjurers are deceptive that they can alter reality and they do it in particular by distracting your attention so that's an important point for you Jeffrey to remember when you're when, when you're telling about uh, trusting media and that, if you think in terms of, of Chomsky and the propaganda model and people distracting us. So, uh, if we look in the tarot cards, for example, we see a progression. We see the, the in one deck, the battler, the juggler, the, the person who, who does tricks. 
um, is represented as, as the, uh, the first card. And later, this figure becomes the, the magus, the magician. So there's a link between that conjurer and the magician, although the, the, the magus card is more elevated. And in the earlier edition, he has a lemniscate infinity sign cap, in the, uh, which becomes an elevated uh, lemniscate figure, of an infinity symbol, removed from his head later on, which may be significant. But, and so in the first meaning of conjurer, we mean someone who's trying to fool us by doing tricks in a deceptive sense. The second meaning, deriving from its Latin base, is the sense of to swear an oath and to swear an oath with other people. So this links to another idea of conspiracy, where we have one or two more people coming together to, to achieve a purpose surreptitiously. So in any context where we have, say, a secret society, we have also, arguably, the idea of an oath which binds people. And as, apart from that, we have the whole idea and law of corporate personality, the idea of a personality which emerges from people coming together, which is separate from the people coming together. And that personality emerges because people have come together or sworn an oath for a common purpose. So that's a meaning that's ignored sometimes in, in the discussion. And then the third meaning, of course, is the sense in the Western esoteric tradition of ceremonial magic. And in particular, we're talking about a situation where a magician seeks to uh, engage in the summoning of spirits. They could be good or bad spirits, but it, there's two processes. An invocation may, and again, these terms, invocation and evocation, are not used necessarily totally consistently. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. An invocation may be a mere appeal, a mere calling on a god or a higher spirit, whereas an evocation is usually the description for a context where a ceremonial magician utilizes rituals in order to command a spirit to appear before them. And this is the essence, in many ways, of the uh, tradition which goes back for hundreds of years. We have uh, examples of well-known ceremonial magicians in the past who engaged in this practice, uh, John Dee probably being among the most prominent. John Dee is a very, very interesting figure. And there is an interesting general point here, just to contextualize some of this discussion, that John Dee, remember, he was, he, he, he was important in the Elizabethan era. So we're talking about the Tudor era. And I noticed some of your, the guests on your program usually talk, criticize the church and it's, the Catholic church and it's, its opposition to witchcraft and that. But an interesting fact is that before the Reformation, the majority of prosecutions for witchcraft by the, by the church and, and authorities were of men. And after the Reformation, the majority were women. So there was a shift somewhere along the line. And remember, when we're talking about this context of Elizabethan uh, England, that the major... The major pieces of legislation came from King, King Henry VIII, from Elizabeth I, and later King James. So they came in a Protestant context. So it's important to, to, not to, to forget that. You're, you're talking about uh, legislation against witchcraft. That's perhaps where I should identify that the word conjuring begins to become used in an important context. Uh, 1542 was the Witchcraft Act of, of uh, King Henry VIII. And in that act, they forbid conjuring of spirits. So at, at that time as well, the English language began to settle in its modern form. So here is where the word begins to get an authority in the discourse, in the public discourse. But John Dee is a very, very interesting character because, of course, we know, and it's been discussed, uh, it's come up in your, pro, in, in your shows uh, a number of times, that... He was famous for utilizing the help of Edward Kelly to bring spirits that he could have contact with. And the reason why he employed Edward Kelly as a medium was because he didn't really have, he couldn't communicate with spirits himself, which is a very, very interesting point. 
so he used spirits and they're famous, famous uh, records, very detailed records he took explaining the experiments uh, both in England and when he went to the continent and describing the experiences and uh, an incredible record of the invocation process. So he was a magician in, in that classic ceremonial sense. But before that, uh, I have a theory that he was utilizing other forms of magic. And there's a wider, there's, a, another, there's two streams of, of magic in this context. People try and distinguish Solomonic magic and hermetic magic, for example. Uh, and he was using magic before uh, he engaged with Kelly. What type of magic is not clear. But remember, there was, legis there was also prohibitions on him conjuring spirits. So some things he will not have disclosed. But he did disclose that he did a favor for uh, Queen, a very important task for Queen Elizabeth I. And there's various speculations about what that was, well, for me anyway. And he is responsible, remember, for conceiving the idea of the British Empire. There is also a story, now historians will not put much credence by this, but this story is there and I, I can believe it to be true, that he, he, he did a magic ceremony, he performed a magic ceremony on the Isle of Dogs in London, which is just opposite Greenwich. Now remember, in Greenwich, Queen Elizabeth I was born and Henry VIII was born in Greenwich. He did a ceremony and the possibility is that he did a ceremony to invoke the British Empire. He was the one who had studied mathematics, navigation, and if that story is true, he would have conceived that this was where the centre of the British Empire was going to be, the Omphalos, the naval centre. And Greenwich was where the navy was based. So the British Empire was based on ruling the waves. And it's possible that he did a, a magic ceremony there as well. And furthermore, Greenwich was where our concept of dividing the world in different time zones came from. Right across from where he did the ceremony was where the Greenwich meridian lay. So you might argue, or some might argue in a fanciful sense, in a symbolic sense, that he invented our modern concept of time and space associated with the empire as well. Now that's an extravagant claim, I know, but the specific evidence of his contribution towards navigation, towards the naval development of the British Empire, and towards mathematics, as well as magic, is very, very clear. And of course, he chose the date for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth I using astrology. And another interesting example, another interesting link, is that when the Blitz started in London, the first place they began to bomb was on the Isle of Dogs, on the 7th of September, which is the Queen Elizabeth I's birthday. I think there's a connection there that has been ignored, actually. So uh, he is a classic uh, example of the use of ceremonial magic. One, one point, however, he was very, very cautious about engaging with evil spirits or demons. He was quite clear, as far as I can see. It doesn't mean that he didn't actually indirectly engage with them through his surrogate, or uh, he didn't, it doesn't mean that he didn't see them, but he was very, very careful to try and engage with angels, and hence his interest in the Enochian language and his attempt to develop, a, or his actual development of an alphabet for communication with the angels, which is the basis of Enochian magic. I might mention parenthetically that uh, I did an earlier interview with Nancy Dutertra uh, concerning the Enochian language and uh, because she had an, an interest that's in the context of extraterrestrial languages and this being potentially uh, one of the first. He, uh, as I recall, believed that a, a being of light, an angelic being, appeared to him and uh, provided him with the, this language. The gave him the, the details of uh, the script. Yes, and there's another interesting concept here is the concept of intelligence. So if we're talking about angels or demons or extraterrestrials, we're talking about different intelligences. And when we're talking about intelligence, we might see a, mo a modern conception of that 
in Hoffman's conception of conscious agents. So if we think of intelligences in a widest form or conscious agents, we see a crossover. And another interesting way that intelligence comes into this is that most very successful ceremonial magicians have at some time or other a connection with the intelligence services. Now, <laughs> that's very, very interesting because they often develop uh, cryptography. They often perform uh, secret operations. So they're a cult in that sense. And of course, John D signed himself 007. He was the original 007. And even we can see similar interests or slightly interest in the cult in writers up to Ian Fleming and uh, I suppose James Bond, Bond to bind. It's a, it's a very, very important part of the magician's, uh, the magician's uh, ceremony. And of course, there's information about Alistair Crowley and intelligence services. And you can go back to all the major ones. And another interesting element of that is that during the Second World War, the intelligence services enlisted the help of magicians in a number of ways, but in particular to inform them about the beliefs of the Nazis. So they contacted the, 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 the shops around London, the places around London where magicians co congregated, to gain insights into how people like Hitler and Himmler conceived the world. And also, we of course have the story of Gerald Gardner, uh, and the idea that they, they a coven of witches uh, invoked a cone of power to, to protect Britain against the Nazis in the same way as John Dee supposedly um, helped in, uh, provoke a storm to stop the Spanish Armada. And of course, John Dee is linked to the figure Prospero and Dr. Faustus from Christopher Marlowe. Well, that's quite a lot to digest, but I'd like to go back to uh, a statement you made earlier. You referred to someone named Hoffman and the idea of conscious agents. Yeah, uh, uh, Donald Hoffman, in relation to consciousness, uh, he is trying to redefine uh, the world in terms of conscious agents. So in his approach to consciousness, from a mathematical perspective, he's looking at the interactions in terms of conscious agents. Now, I'm, I've mixed feelings about this. It may be that such uh, ideas or mapping of consciousness may be to allow computer consciousness, artificial intelligence, to be regarded as conscious agents as well at a certain point. And if they are, it, it poses huge issues in relation to the nature of human consciousness. So I'm mixed feelings. I think there's something important there in relation to his work, but I'm not sure about whether the, the application of it will be something that I would celebrate because uh, it will be using the Turing test in relation to uh, intelligence and computers. Uh, it may be that we can be fooled in relation to identifying uh, something as analogous to human consciousness, but it won't be human consciousness. So, But I, I do think that the idea of conscious agents is similar to an idea of describing the world in terms of a hierarchy of intelligences that is traditional in the esoteric and occult ideas, whereby we can assume that there are, are angels and extraterrestrials and beings from other planets and demons or daemons, whatever. Well, another way to think of conjuring, and, and I think you've sort of hinted at it, is that when people come together and, and make an agreement, uh, they create what we could call an egregore or a tulpa, something that uh, didn't exist prior to uh, their creation of it, but it can have a, a kind of autonomous existence once it's been evoked or conjured up. There is an interesting area that I think is neglected in parapsychology. It's the effect, or if you like, the, the personality of legal personality. So the idea of limited liability companies are based on the idea that the, 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 if five people come together and form a corporation, there are six people, one of them which is a corporate entity that has personality and operates in the world. And of course, we're run by large companies. 
So these entities exist as legal constructions and they have their own personalities because they're informed by the inputs of people and organizational structures. The concept of egregore is one that uh, I find interesting, but I find it's become used in a very elastic sense. So, for example, in relation to conjuring, I hear a lot of the contemporary generation of conjurers, of people engaged in ceremonial magic, begin to describe everything supernatural in terms of egregores. So they will say, for example, that God is an egregore, Jesus is an egregore, and it begins, it begins for me to look a bit silly, and it, it seems to reflect some of the, idea, the ideas of perhaps of postmodernism, of deconstruction, of, of beginning to oversimplify what's there. And then, of course, if you have arguments, for example, that Prometheus is an egregore, you have to say, well, what is the value of that concept compared with ideas, say, for example, of the Archangel Michael? Now, the difference between those two is significant, for example, uh, because we can see various examples through history of where the figure of Michael has had a direct impact on people and what they do, and also has appeared to people. I don't know, for example, that Prometheus has ever appeared to anybody. There's an important difference. So the arguments from people in the domains that, that are open to, say, the Archangel Michael, and Archangel Michael is critical in ceremonial magic. He's there at the start with King Solomon, giving him the power over demons, and he's there right through up to the present time. He's, he's there uh, when the Pope has a vision of Satan and God in the Vatican and Satan saying that he's going to take over the Catholic Church and hence the prayer to St. Michael was introduced in the 1880s and it lasted up to 1964 in every low mass and he's there for Steiner. Steiner said we were moving into a period where, where St. Michael or Michael was going to become the dominant figure because he was the necessary supernatural force who was going to uh, attack the dragon. The dragon was science and the materialist world. It wasn't some strange satanic uh, figure. But uh, So I th think the egregore has been used in an oversimplified way. I've no, no doubt that there are thought forms, particularly as developed in Tibetan Buddhism, and th that demonstrate that thought forms can be created. But uh, I, I, I wouldn't extrapolate in the way that it has been done. And I wouldn't, I'd be very careful if I were, if I was starting off again as a younger person, listening to people that deconstruct all these concepts to have a very real force. And another example, of course, St. Michael was, the, was one of the figures that supposedly appeared to Joan of Arc. And Joan of Arc is an interesting uh, figure in this context. So there's a difference between what those forms are. Another example from the Elizabethan era uh, relating to conjuring would be uh, Marlowe's great play, Dr. Faustus. Yes. And th there's, there's, of course, the triangle between John Dee, Dr. Faustus, and then Prospero in The Tempest. Because, of course, when, when Shakespeare comes to write The Tempest, we have Prospero, who is another arch musician. Uh, magician. But um, Dr. Faustus is a critical, a critical play, and he's a, a, a critical uh, instance of the discussion of conjuring. Now, I've heard an expert on ceremonial magic recently who claims that there's no such thing as making a pact with the devil. Now, I, I think there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, despite all the, all the popular myths in between. And if we look at people like Manly Hall, uh, they accept that this procedure existed. And Dr. Faustus was based, of course, on a, a German figure, uh, a real figure. And there was various legends about him. There was articles written about him. They came to Elizabethan England. And Christopher Marlowe uh, wrote Dr. Faustus. Now, in, in the story of Dr. Faustus, which has been, which is a recurrent a recurrent theme or story 
in, in uh, European literature, uh, he makes the pact with the devil. And the, the, the common theme of the Faustian uh, story is that the person wants knowledge at any cost. They want knowledge now, they want to extend their life on, uh, on, on the planet, but the key thing is that they, they want knowledge. And also that they're, they're highly educated, highly scientific, have engaged in all, all the, the sciences, but are a little bit bored and don't really believe in an afterlife. This is, this is a, a critical element that I think is, is ignored in this. The magicians kind of not so sure that, that there'll be an afterlife, that they'll, they'll be going somewhere else. So they, they're really interested in control. That's another idea. The magician wants to control things. They want power and they want power now. So of course in Faust, Faustus, we have, a, uh, we have a genuine sense that if you make the pact with the devil, you're going to hell and it's not nice. So later on, that becomes modified. And in Goethe, well, you know, he did bad and all that, but in the end he was kind of saved. Now that's a, a departure from the idea that, that uh, existed at the time. There are two versions of the Marlowe play, and, um, but the, that, that idea is, is fundamental. And some people now think that Faust, there has been a criticism of Western society as a Faustian society destined to, you know, to, to, to go down in flames. And some people seem to celebrate that as if it's uh, the, a, a kamikaze kind of intuition in Western culture that it destroys itself, which I, I, I don't agree with. And I don't agree with Faustian as being a, a great example. It, it, was a, it was a morality tale, if you like, but it was also a tale about the consequences of dealing with ceremonial magic w without considering the higher, the higher values, a warning. And then, of course, we have Prospero uh, in, in The Tempest and his story with, with magic. In all of these instances, and I think probably including John Dee, there's this sense that you can uh, conjure up a spirit, you can have uh, some sort of discourse with a spirit, but you're, you're at risk because you may end up becoming, in spite of your best intentions, possessed. I, I would warn people about that from a spiritual perspective. Um, generally, now I know that as people in particular traditions. Uh, Serena was talking about it in relation to the Dalai Lama, but they have a very long tradition of dealing with these things, and they're very skeptical of people experimenting with things. It's a very disciplined practice in a very spiritual context, and this is a difference, because if you look at a lot of the invocations, the evocations, the spells, the grimoires, uh, they were set in a Catholic context. For example, in the sworn book of Honorius, which was around the 1200s, which was an early significant book with sigils uh, and seals that, that John Dee possessed or seems to ha have perhaps used. We see that you had to prepare for the ceremonies by going to mass and saying prayers. Now, all this stuff has been stripped away. So the consequence of that is that the individual engaged in ceremonial magic who is invoking the names of God uh, to protect them doesn't have a real attachment to that or a real belief. So they can't be protected in the same way, uh, in my sense. And a good example of, of, of what you're talking about is provided by Evelyn Underhill. So Evelyn Underhill, of course, is, is one of the most important writers on mysticism. But she started off as a magician, and she was associated with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And she wrote a book called uh, The Column of Dust. And this was a book about a girl in a, uh, who works in a bookshop and she experiments with ceremonial magic. I think she uses spells from, from Levy and she's in the bookshop and she uses all the things, circles, triangles, wands, braziers, a whole lot, mirrors, and a demon is evoked, but she becomes possessed by it. So possession is a very, very real danger. And I don't I'd warn people uh, about that. Pe people say, well, it's all in the mind. I don't think it is. And if you look at the exorcism and the history of exorcism, and you read people like Malachi Martin, for example, who you've, you've interviewed, um, who performed exorcisms, it's an horrific 
It's an horrific uh, event, and there's a lot of there's a lot more Protestant uh, uh, exorcisms these days, uh, which is interesting. Uh, in fact, I met a man when I went after meeting you, and I, uh, I f we flew up my friend over the hills into Colorado. I met a, a man who does exorcisms, uh, who's, who's a, a Protestant gentleman, but um, as it happened. So, uh, yes, in, Evelyn Underhill warns against engaging in that, and she went from magic to mysticism. And also, she talks about other things like the astral plane. She says that the magician engages in the astral plane, whereas the mystic goes straight through it as quickly as possible. Uh, and there's a different objective. So there's a big question for me is, if you engage in these things, to what extent in your afterlife, and I believe that we continue afterwards, that you are unconsciously putting yourself in the company of, of, of these spirits that you engage with. And also, uh, when you think of the PK man, it's interesting because he was engaging in magic, uh, in, in my view. It had all the characteristics. And if you, well, you know well from his method, but if you look at it, it has all the elements of the Renaissance ma magician developing your memory. He developed his memory as far as I remember, and he used to do stage shows, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And also his visualizations of the space intelligences, again, the word intelli intelligence, uh, seemed sigil-like, insect creatures with circles. So there may have been some, some, some crossover, but he also demonstrates the volatility uh, associated with seeking to control forces. And then, of course, the question is, well, why do you want to control? A lot of, a lot of control is associated with exerting force over the material world. Uh, and we can engage in those things without understanding sufficiently the complexity of the systems we engage in. And then there's a lot of more mundane uh, functions. Tre treasure hunting is a classic context which people use ceremonial magic. And you can see this in the life of Joseph Smith, the, the founder of the Mormon church. He engaged in treasure hunting and, and this, kind of, uh, this kind of invocation and evocation, which was very common in, the, in, in areas in the east coast of the states brought over by the settlers into the Appalachians and other areas in religious folk magic. Well, I, um, in my youth, was very interested in a magical grimoire called uh, The Sacred Magic of Abra Malin, which involved extensive preparation, six months in solitude and purification before the performance of the ritual to invoke one's holy guardian angel. But then it was suggested that the holy guardian angel was capable of uh, really responding to any request, sort of like Aladdin and his genie, and uh, even to the extent of, of raising armies. If you had to fight uh, a battle, uh, the uh, magician would be capable of, of producing armies out of nowhere. Yeah, well, that brings me back to Hieronymus Bosch and the, and the conjuring in the original sense of deception and, and misdirected attention. But the six months was the shortened version of that ceremony because I think eighteen months is the is the oh, the, the the longer version. Um, so that 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 was the ceremony that Alistair Crowley uh, sought to perform in Boleskine House by Loch Ness. Uh, and if you go into a situation from a mystical perspective where you deprive yourself of food, pray regularly, uh, go through all those physical challenges, you will have mystical experiences. But as far as I remember, in that particular ceremony, you do have to engage with the worst of the demons as part of the process. You engage with the demons first, as far as I remember, in order to bind them so that you can move on to your, your uh, holy guardian angel. So it's a very, very dangerous thing to do. And then you say, well, what are you doing this for? Uh, and then the question is, what is the holy guardian angel? Now, some contemporary ceremonial magicians are saying the holy guardian angel is what used to be conceived as God. Now, that, that, that for me is a ridiculous uh, proposition. I'm, I'm sorry, but, but it, it is. Um, the, uh, and I think, uh, I, I think the answers to some of these questions are provided by looking at the mystical, the mystical tradition. 
Uh, and we'll talk in the future, uh, perhaps, about the idea of the, the higher self, the man of light, the woman of light, the what the mystics in the, of the nature of Mani or Zoroaster or in the, the, the illuminationist uh, tradition uh, conceive to be the higher being. And in some senses, it seems to me that the magician is seeking to do what the mystic does with a different technique. But the technique they're using is a technique of compulsion and control. Now that's inimicable in my, in my sense to the idea of the higher forces because in that sense it's uh, don't call us, we'll call you. And if you look at the Kabbalistic tradition and the idea of reception, and it's the same in the Sufi tradition, the idea is you are preparing yourself by humbling yourself, by polishing the mirror, by emptying the dish, by preparing the, the Holy Grail, which is in you, by preparing the Ark of the Covenant in, in you to receive from the higher force. You can't do that if you're exercising will. So if you're talking about the exercise of will, you're talking about the head. And the heart is different. And looking at Alistair Crowley, he was very short on the compassion and the heart element. So if you want a world which is run in that form, that's fine. But it's inconsistent with the locus of the being in the heart in that sense. Let me jump around a little uh, with you, James. Uh, uh, you were suggesting there might be a significant difference between uh, an egregore that is really a human creation versus one, and I think you're suggesting that St. Michael might be su such a one that has a, a real authentic autonomous existence. And uh, I'm reminded of, of a case that occurred in my own family. My mother was an actress, and uh, her greatest role, I think, was playing Blanche in Streetcar Named Desire, the play by Tennessee Williams, a very tragic character and obviously a fictional character, maybe based on real people, but Blanche is a fiction. Um, and yet, when my mother played Blanche on stage, she was never quite the same after that. It was as if uh, she had become possessed by this character, and Blanche always sort of stayed with her and, and was became, in a way, a part of our family since, uh, since the performance. And uh, so it suggests to me that people can become possessed by imaginary characters. Oh, yes. I, I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that. My my qualification of the egregore concept, as I have heard it, is that it's being projected onto what are seen to be spiritual forces by the most enlightened, I mean, spiritual forces perceived thus by the most enlightened people. So the people who engage in esoteric and mystical things and mystical endeavors see certain forces. Now, of course, we can disagree with, with those things, but these forces represent something real. And if you take the figure of, of Michael, for example, he's important in Judaism and Islam and Christianity and in African spiritual traditions. He's quite a, one of these universal figures, sometimes equated with uh, St. George. And some people believe that St. Michael and Jesus were the same, are the same people same beings uh, on a different level, on, on a higher level. So uh, when there is this massive evidence of, if you like, downloads and influxes of uh, forces from the higher levels, it's a bit different than the, the construction or reconstruction of a figure that can inform. Uh, so... so uh, and if you think even think of the word invention, the invention, the word invention comes from in and venire to come into. So even the idea of invention itself suggests, say, coming into, as in the sense of ideas, although that's not a specific historical evolution of the patent system. So yes, I I, I uh, accept that. Uh, my my point would be that uh, uh, certainly there is that knowledge of egregores, tulpas. Uh, but 
I wouldn't deconstruct the, uh, some of the existing spiritual entities that have real force. And this is, uh, this is if we take the biggest example in relation to Jesus Christ. There's been a very strong movement to say this figure didn't exist. He was a Roman soldier. It's construction. He was a myth. Now, this is, if you, again, if you look at the people that, who studied myth and, and, and wrote about myth, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they didn't see it as, as, a, as a myth, although they understood what myths and legends were and they could distinguish them and they had access to very good records uh, in the academy. So um, when you get down to dismissing everything of those traditions which are powerful and, and important, uh, it, 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 it kind of reduces the value of the concept of, of egregores. And also, I conceive the figure of Jesus Christ as a force. It's a spiritual force. So this is a, a mistake that people make. And in the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a process which is deconstructing that idea. And I understand the political and ideological reasons and historical reasons why that's happening. But they are mi missing something in that. Whatever, if the Catholic Church was to disintegrate, as was predicted by St. Malachy, that this is the last Pope, as you predicted hundreds of years ago, and it didn't exist. The force which drove it, the real central force, will continue in different forms. It, it will transmute into different forms. So um, I understand, I, I, just, I just think it's been used in an oversimplified context recently, and I think it's come out of uh, ideas of postmodernism or being informed by, and it's part of a, uh, this general counter-hegemonic idea after Gramsci and people like that. So. Since you're referring to the postmodern era, uh, in addition to ceremonial magic, we hear quite a bit these days about something called chaos magic, a postmodern approach to conjuring, which is very, very different. There, there are different forms. I think in, in particularly in the 70s and like Peter Carroll and people like that, we see the ev evolution of contemporary chaos magic. Um, and it goes back to other figures like Austin Osman Spare, who is another another uh, person uh, in London, an artist who who had some influence in the evolution. Uh, and to a certain extent, it blends is a syncretist movement that blends ele elements uh, of everything that has it reflects in some sense uh, some of the perennial wisdom while at the same time wanting to destroy existing things. So I think there are all types of magic. One of, one of the problems I have is when people talk about magic is they talk about the Western, the Western tradition. But there's nothing Western about Solomon, King Solomon and Hermes. You know, they, they don't really come from probably in Western Europe. And Western Europe in particular had its own tradition. It had its Druidic tradition. And... I, I know when we talked about Ireland, people forget that if we go back uh, 2,000 years, Ireland was known as, uh, and, and we can see this in the records, it was known uh, in the, before the Christian period as a very important spiritual place that people travelled to for learning. And we know about Julius Caesar wrote about the Druids. Some of the Druids used to come to Ireland to uh, educate themselves. So there was a different tradition which was more well, it was astro astronomical based. They had a great uh, idea of the heavens. And in fact, one of their arguments with the Roman Catholic Church was they had a different conception of the calculation of the date of Easter because they were very into the astronomical uh, study. And also they had a very uh, close relationship with the earth. And so, for example, there's another example. So we see the figure of Prometheus rising associated with fire. But the Western tradition is bridged. Bridget is the fire goddess. So we have a substitution here. And I say, well, well, why should I take a Greek story of a guy that failed miserably, who had to be rescued by Heracles or, or Hercules, uh, who backfire, who, who, whose enterprise backfires in some sense, over the existing goddess who was even taken on by the Catholic Church in St. Bridget, who who was a, a goddess associated with fire and the elements and blacksmiths and craftsmanship. So in some sense, the, uh, we have to look at magic in different sense. And that's also, there's African magic, and we see African magic brought over to the 
uh, to Brazil. And I can see, for example, I, I did a little bit of capoeira, the martial art and the dance form, and, and, and my daughters do that. And you can see in the capoeira setup the traces of the ancient spiritual mystical tradition where it must have been, where you have the circle and you have the monochord and you have beating the, beating the drums and invocations to, uh, I'm not saying to the people that are concerned about but uh, and then we have two people interacting in a yin-yang situation, uh, moving, and it, it, reflects, it, it reflects a certain cosmology, and there's a mystical practice behind that which has been taken out of it with a process of sanitization. But the point being that magic is everywhere, uh, and also it's possible for the individual to extract elements from these magical traditions to help them because there's great things there about memory about focus about will there's great lessons that can be learned from there i accept that but messing about with demons is something i think is a waste of time it's very interesting how you you brought up uh, the ancient traditions of ireland and uh, how important they are to understand both magic and mysticism. I'm reminded of, I think we had a previous discussion regarding the Irish poet, uh, William Butler Yeats, who seemed to be using his poetry as a way of uh, conjuring up a, a new Irish civilization. He, he drew on what they call the, the peasant kind of culture, because another important point in magic is, and in, in culture, is that most of it is oral and it's not written down. So the biases towards the grimoires, etc., that were written down, but most of the magic is not written down. It may be handed down in families. It may be embedded in cultural practices. It's there, and that's why he went out to talk to the people, and that's why uh, Evans Wentz went to talk to the people, because they had a tradition. It was a real living tradition that explained about beings, that explained about ancient history, that explained about maybe the Irish people had come uh, in ships that landed on the mountains, ancient stories that explained about shape-shifting, that explained about things that sound more consistent with a scientific idea of the future, uh, that explained that there, were, there used to be an island called High Brazil off the west coast of Ireland, for example. And there are also theories that Atlantis was off the west coast of, of Europe and that the civilization had, had come from there. I mean, um, there's other interesting elements. But he certainly, in, in his, his work in the Golden Dawn, uh, and his, his conception sought to, uh, in, sought to evoke a conception of Ireland through the cultural form. And it's an example. When people talk about the cultural wars in the United States, they did it, it happened in Ireland, that culture was mobilized to bring the the uh, other the, the nationalist struggle forward, and that's why he asked whether his words had sent people out to die in 1916. But but that that's true. Uh, there is an interesting uh, conception, and this is the this, the great symbolic uh, work idea, which is similar to John Dee conjuring up the British Empire. Is that idea that if we create a vision, well, that vision. I said, you might want to say similar to the egregore, but I, I don't think that's necessarily true. But they did draw on the idea of Ireland as an ancient goddess and that Ireland had been a goddess kind of civilization. And that began to disseminate down and to draw in the mystical elements. But of course, in 1916, we had a mystical, uh, the, the revolutionaries had a mystical strand, had a, a socialist strand, had a, there was different elements in it. So, but but that, that argument is certainly uh, very true. If you go back to the most ancient times, like, I'm thinking now of the birth of uh, theater, the birth of drama. Uh, I suppose it happened in ancient Greece, but it it's also uh, thought to have sort of emerged out of magical rituals and shamanistic traditions and uh, mystery schools that theater itself, even you could say the cinema, ha has its origins in, in a kind of act of conjuring. I, I think that's, that's correct, and it's important to try and uh, distinguish them. Certainly, we might think that we have kind of structured religion and we have the mystery traditions and we have magic 
and there's a this kind of interplay between them. Uh, and if we think of the mystery traditions, there was certainly uh, an idea that you you dramatize at one level. It might have been at the lower level before they moved on to the higher element, but that we dramatize the uh, the stories and the myths and the uh, the ideas beyond. And uh, but I I would I, I would put it this way that the if we take we know that the, the the particular idea of shamanism is associated with Siberia and it's been extended. But if we take the idea of the shaman or the druid in the Irish context that we have an idea of a, a certain mystical person who can engage in what is magic. But the key element seems to be the engagement in the, the, the earlier mystical uh, journey. And the mystical journey will tell stories about the community and the tribe. And they may develop particular techniques so other people can share that. For example, if they use psilocybin or mushrooms they may be able to share that experience and explain what's going to happen and relate that to the gods so the uh, looking at the work uh, that was done by kingsley or by the on, on the pre-socratic philosophers in greece and empedocles and all that, there's the suggestion that there was a, of a shamanistic tradition which had to be there beforehand and that makes sense but in all these traditions and i think it underlines everything even the egyptian tradition there is a, a progression from a, a, a fairly a simple idea of a, a person engaging in a mystical journey and associated with that, we get the magical ceremonies. And as a society becomes more complex, they may become distant from access to the mystical uh, tradition uh, and they may have to go through particular rituals to invoke it or to support the apparatus of meaning in society and it becomes more complex and it may become reserved to particular priesthoods and not disseminated to the people. So uh, there is a process of, uh, of evolution and certainly with acting um, there, there has to be a connection in the mystery traditions and the process of acting and in the sense of as you know about persona and the idea of acting and where those words uh, come from uh, I, I think that that's correct and that would tie in with your, your mother and the identification. But I think also uh, from your discipline in relation to psychology, there are kind of efforts to utilize drama as well for healing purposes so people can begin to understand the play and game in their own psyche as far as I can uh, understand. Another point that you raised earlier is uh, that you think it's a very bad idea to conjure up demons, uh, that it's risky at best, I, I suppose. And yet, uh, we see uh, the tradition of theurgy, which is usually associated with mainstream religious rituals, not invoking demons, but in invoking God or invoking one might say the, the, the most good, highest uh, spiritual forces. And, and yet we're told by uh, people who subscribe to demonology that these demons are very tricky and that they will pretend to be the higher forces and then uh, seduce you that way. So how does one distinguish? I, I think that this is a very interesting question. And we have that distinction or dichotomy between Goetia and Teurgy. And we have that evolution uh, from, say, Plato to the Neoplatonist and on, onwards. And my reading of it is that this is the, a, a classic dividing line between magic and mysticism. Now, as far as I can, as far as I understand, and this is my conception from looking at the perennial tradition, there are two elements that come into it. One is the idea that in order to be receptive towards the higher forces, one has to have a degree of humility. One has to have a, a, a lack of pride to some extent. One has to have an emptying of ego. One has to have a discarding of things. One has to cut off from, from base attachments. One has to uh, dislocate from attachment to things which are not spiritual. It's an emptying process. One cleans out the inner being so that 
one is receptive, which is why a lot of the purification things there. When one does that, then one begins to open up to a higher dimension with the idea that there is a hierarchy of being of spiritual entities with ultimately a creative force at the top that there is a a ladder from the 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 bottom drawer up to the top which is why in all of the made the great spiritual leaders they had a humility they emphasized that linkage with other beings with beings that didn't have anything because those beings had the same divinity in them uh, as themselves so the humility is very very important and that's important before one engages if you take the example of Joan of Arc she had her an apparition of God and maybe Saint Michael and uh, uh, and they began when she was about 13 but she had been very devout in Catholic terms before that. She went to Mass every day, so she was a very pure person in that sense. And then she had her visions, which leads to her being uh, leading the French army in the Hundred Years' War, uh, engaging in the siege, uh, leading the troops. The English feared her. And now, of course, another interesting point is she was prosecuted uh, there was a debate about whether she had conjured spirits. They had the various theologians involved, and they generally didn't buy it. And they talked about discernment. They were, they were quite aware. They said, yes, a person can be fooled, but there is a process of discernment. And they were convinced that she was, she was sufficiently spiritually evolved to, to have engaged in these processes. Um, and then, of course, she was executed, and people blamed the Catholic Church. Uh, but... The, the prelates at the time were under the control of the rival English, uh, it, was a, it was English occupied area where, uh, at the time, and she was executed for other reasons. The main reason, if you, if you look at Larissa Taylor, has written a, a recent book about Joan of Arc, and the main reason was because the English soldiers were afraid of her. They were afraid of her symbolic and actual help for the French army, and they put pressure. The reason why she was executed and burned at the stake at age 19 was for, for wearing men's clothes actually it wasn't for the conjuring of spirits but it didn't really wash they did they, they accepted that she she was uh she was not conjuring spirits these were genuine uh, apparitions and they informed her and she wouldn't have done the things that she did without a very strong sense but again it starts off from a great humility and, and that's the difference. You wouldn't call Alistair Crowley a humble man, whatever else you want to call about. If you look at the, the people that engaged in, in ceremonial magic, you wouldn't call him. John Dee wasn't that humble either. Uh, you could also think of other people. Um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, for example, another person. You, you wouldn't call him humble, whatever else he, he, he was. So this is a different tradition. The magi magic tradition is about control, exerting control, believing that you can control it. The mystical tradition says that you open up. But as well as that, there is a pathway, and the pathway is a simple value of compassion, a compassion of recognition of the beingness of others as equally divinely inspired, as equally meritorious, independent of their what they do so it's an openness to other beings at the start so there is one goal and that is compassion recognition of, of, of other beings and that is the the, the the narrow path and in many senses I, I think people people go wrong when they spend too much time debating the nature of the divine and God and, and whatever and they get into all kinds of intellectual uh, quagmires in that sense and if you look at some of the Kabbalistic tradition early on God withdrew from the picture and the world was through a process of withdrawal so I mean the, 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 and even in ideas of the tetra, tetra, uh, tetragrammaton and ideas that you don't use the name of God there's ideas that there's a domain which is higher up there that we shouldn't draw down because drawing down is another idea in magic. You draw down powers, as in Egyptian magic, hermetic magic. You draw down, and, and that, that also applies to theurgy. But theurgy uh, 
in my view, reflects a classic mystical development. And it may be developed by particular individuals, as in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition you were talking about with, with Serena. Uh, so in that sense, it, it reflects a, 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 the mystical journey. And you could argue that the great mystics in the Catholic tradition were engaging in a very similar process. But that is going to happen if the person has started off from a degree of humility and they are focusing intently on the divine source, that kind of descent begins to happen. And this is a very important idea that as the individual empties themselves, then they can begin to ascend and there is a corresponding descent of higher forces. And it's the meeting point or some kind of emanation from the divine source that meets the individual. So in that sense, theurgy, yes, it could be equally bad if it's engaged in a process of ego or control or you wanting to control the angels or have angels do your biddings or have God do your bidding. Well, that's a different thing. That, that's, that's, that's not consistent with a humble, egoless uh, thing. So, I mean, I don't think the perennial tradition is not very complicated in what it's saying and you don't have to engage in ancient Babylonian or Sumerian rune or runes or whatever to construct a situation to engage in divine forces and of course in the Celtic tradition and in most traditions around the world the uh, divine is all around you in nature in, in the Native American tradition the divine is around you and there is great from the great spirit there, there there is and mother earth there are the forces around you you are engaging with them every day when you put your foot on the ground you're engaging with with these things so there's a more pervasive imminent sense of, of the divine now you did mention uh, a while ago a uh, a prophecy that had been made regarding the catholic church that satan was going to take over the catholic church it does suggest that even uh when people are uh, ostensibly invoking the highest of forces, if they're filled with, as, as you say, pride or, or ego, it can still go wrong. There's two stories. One, uh, St. Malachi, who predicted that it would be 112 popes, and this is the 112th pope, and that the church would end there. And he might be right. But uh, the <laughs> the second one was Pope Leo XIII, who was in the Vatican and he had a vision and the vision he, he was he was very frightened as a result of our moved and the vision was of Satan and God communicating and Satan asserting that he could take over the Catholic Church if he had a hundred years okay so this is an, an inch but 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 it did have direct effects because that was where the origin of the St. Michael's prayer in the Catholic Church came from and you do have you do have Malachi Martin who who you uh, as we said you met uh, who he argued, for example, and it's very controversial, but he argued that there had been a kind of satanic takeover uh, in in the church uh, or satanic ceremonies had been performed in the church and he got very disillusioned and he believed that there was a general kind of take movement away with the, the Second Vatican Council from the tradition of the Mass. And th there is a, 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 an emerging rift, I can hear, in the church from very traditional Catholics who believe that something has been lost. So uh, it is the problem of institutions and it is the problem of giving your oath, your belief, your being to an institution. An institution is frail and has human frailties. And of course, we know that institutions can be captured and institutions can be utilized for other forces. And in fact, if we look at people like know, Dennis Wheatley and his novels and uh, about uh, the occult and the devil, a fundamental part of the devil worship is by utilizing the Catholic ceremonies and inverting them and utilizing consecrated uh, things. Uh, in the future, I, I believe that in the future, if magic is not going to be reintroduced into the Catholic Church, uh, and if it doesn't go underground that will be very very reduced to a more simple idea in in, in future I, I, it, it can't be in between i think it will be either retain its traditional magic because a lot of the the ritual in the 
Catholic Church contained uh, magic and magical power, uh, and it will, or it will be very, very simplified, very uh, missing a lot of the uh, the, the big uh, the big structural elements. James Tunney, this has been a wonderful conversation. I know we've covered uh, uh, many, many points regarding conjuring and magic and its relationship to mysticism. I think the good news is that we plan to have further conversations as as well, because I sense that we're just scratching the surface. But for now, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much. And I appreciate, as always, our conversations. And I look forward to picking up the treads in our our next conversation. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us. And let me also encourage you to visit our website for the New Thinking Aloud Foundation. That's newthinkingaloud.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter.